Tonight we're in the last night of our series, Epic Fails of the Patriarchs. We've been trying now for four weeks to beat it out of everyone's head that Christianity is a religion about good people who do good things so that God would love them, and instead to show that uh, even uh, the famous people in the Old Testament were sinners like us, great moments of victory, but also some epic Epic fails. And tonight we're going to uh, look at the life of David, who is probably, we could make a case saying David's the most, one of the most faithful guys in the Old Testament, but he probably, we saved him for last because he probably had the single most epic fail of all time. And so now would you please stand for the reading of God's Word as we read this story, this chapter out of David's life. David, the man after God's own heart. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 11. Well, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was Walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is it not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwells in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as, my, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And then David said to Uriah, well, Remain here today also and tomorrow and I will send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening... He went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. 
But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. The the beautiful parts, the not so beautiful parts. Knowing that you are displeased by this, Lord. That this was even David, the most faithful man of the Old Testament, who had somehow sunk to this awful low, Lord. And you included these things in your word to teach us, to warn us, but also to teach us, Lord. And so we pray that you would teach us today that you would show us the beauty of Jesus through these words, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> in 2009, Tulian Chivijian, the grandson of famous evangelist Billy Graham, Uh, merged his young church plant with the once great flagship church of the PCA, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, uh, in a hope to bring Coral Ridge back from decline after the death of its very famous culture warrior pastor, D. James Kennedy. But the problem was, Tullian wasn't a culture warrior. He He didn't want to have anything to do with culture war, politics, and religion. He wanted the church to be about the gospel, He wanted the church to be about what we're for. His network called uh, Liberate Network, the slogan was the inexhaustible grace of God for an exhausted world. You feel that? That's real. He wanted the gospel to be forefront. He wanted the church to be about that message. And in, in so doing, he ended up making some serious enemies within Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church who began to fight against him for his to be fired, for him to be fired, and stress and pressure. At the same time, uh, Tullian's message of inexhaustible grace for an exhausted world, uh, along with his new high-profile job and a famous pedigree, struck a nerve in the evangelical world tired of culture, war, politics, religion, and he became instantly, almost overnight, famous celebrity pastor. And in the midst of that, also made some enemies of people that felt that his theology went too far, and he was under stress and under pressure. And all of a sudden, he found himself a 36-year-old man, the pastor of a famous church in the National Christian Spotlight. And in June of 2015, superstar, evangelical, Presbyterian, celebrity pastor, Tulian Chavidjian, grandson of Billy Graham, successor to culture warrior, celebrity pastor D. James Kennedy, confessed that he had developed an inappropriate relationship with a friend after learning that his wife was now having her own affair. His wife uh, disagreed with his assessment. And later on in May of 2016, more truth came out and Tulian confessed to having a prior affair to the one that he partially admitted to. In a statement that he gave after the whole truth had finally come out, he said, I hope and pray that the events of my own life over the past couple of years serve as a warning to all who, like I did, believe that they are standing firm. 
Sin is deep, it is real, it destroys, it deceives. And may this be an opportunity for all of us to examine our own hearts and to beg God for the mercy and forgiveness that we all need. Now, whenever something like this happens, people always want to say, well, how, could this, how could this possibly happen? How could a godly pastor fall from grace like that? How can this possibly happen? And some people will come out and they'll say, well, I know how this happened. He was, not, he was a bad egg from the beginning. But he wasn't. He wasn't some shyster televangelist who was in it for the money. He was one of us. Some other people will say, it was his theology. He had bad theology. He let grace go too far. And that's what undid him. Whatever the excuses are, whatever the reactions are, they all try to set it up as he's not like us. He's not good like us. He doesn't have bad theology like we, we have good theology. But the reality of why Tulian fell, the reality is because he is just like us. He's a sinner just like us, just like King David was. He's a guy who got off balance. He began to believe the hype. He began to listen to his own press releases. And he started to drift long before he ever realized what was happening. And then once when it was happened, he tried to cover it up to protect his reputation, just like we do, just like King David did. King David, like I said, was probably the most faithful man of the Old Testament. Uh, in the course of his life, he trusted God with all his might, even in the hard stuff, even in the, 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 the dire goings of life. David's story is of a guy who absolutely trusted in God. He was probably 15, maybe 20 years old when the prophet Samuel anointed him king over all Israel, and he spent the next 15 years in obscurity, taking care of sheep, and then running from King Saul, who was trying to kill him out of jealousy and fear. And at that, you know, that whole time, David absolutely refused to kill Saul, even though he had multiple opportunities to do it, even though Saul was evil, even though Saul was trying to kill him, even though David knew that the Lord had anointed him king over Israel, he knew he wanted to trust in God, and so he waited. He was insistent on waiting for God's timing to make him king and refused to take his timing into his own hands. What, what, what Abraham lacked, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, David had it in spades. He trusted God, so much so that the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. But... As David's fame and power and wealth and reputation grew, as he became more wealthy and powerful, as one wife turned into two wives, as two wives turned into four wives, as four wives turned into four wives and ten concubines, uh, one day when he was neglecting his responsibilities as king for a season of leisure instead, which he, of course, deserved, right? Because he was God's anointed king over Israel. He found himself spying on a beautiful girl bathing on a rooftop. And honestly, what's one more concubine when you already have ten? It didn't matter that she was the granddaughter 
of one of his highest political advisors, Ahithophel. It didn't matter that the girl was the wife of one of his best friends. Uriah the Hittite was one of the 30 mighty men that fought with David the whole time Saul was trying to kill him. Uriah the Hittite was standing as a shield in front of David, risking his life to protect God's anointed. He's one of David's best friends. In the great victories of David's career, we see that David trusted in God even when things looked impossible. But there's another super important part of trusting God that we learn from this whole sordid mess, from this story. And so the big takeaway from this is this, that the King David, this story, is what, it, what does it really mean to be a man after God's own heart? The way the Bible defines it. That's what we find out from this. What does the Bible say about what it means to be a righteous man or woman? And the surprising answer to this is not what we immediately think. It means righteous means perfect. The surprising answer to this is the big idea of this passage, and that is that in the depths of sin, the righteous trust Christ. In the depths of sin, the righteous trust Christ. We're going to look at that in two parts today. First, in the depths of sin. So what happened to David? How did David be... How did David go from the guy who would charge a giant knowing that the power of the Lord would protect him? How did David go from a guy who absolutely refused to kill the evil king of Israel waiting 15 years in obscurity for God to fulfill his promise to a guy who found himself on the rooftop spying out the neighborhood women? And there's two big reasons that we can look at. The first is that David became so powerful and wealthy, he became powerful and wealthy enough to forget about God. Whoever wrote Proverbs 30, I'm not sure who it was, maybe had David in mind when they said, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I become full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? In that same psalm, the psalmist also asked that God would protect him from poverty. But he also asked that he would be protected from wealth and from power because he realized how easy it is when we become powerful in our own means to totally forget about God. The passage that we read on the, in the, the reading of, of the, the, the reading of the law today, talking about how Israel so quickly forgot about all the things that God had done for her. David finds himself in the same position. He became so wealthy and so powerful, he had forgotten that God pulled him out of obscurity as a shepherd. He had forgotten that God had protected his life for 10 years while he ran for Saul. He'd forgotten that God had given him the kingdom of Israel. God had made him king. God had given him all of these things that he was now trusting in instead of God And because of that, he'd forgotten about God, disconnected, and found himself on the rooftop spying out the neighborhood women. We had a, we were at a Bible study once, we had a friend that was there, and the topic of the Bible study was, 
was the danger and temptation of wealth. And this person was just, just beside themselves because they just couldn't imagine how it could be that wealth was a problem. She actually was, it came out. She had such an idol over money and wealth. She thought that that was what was going to make her happy. And she was constantly bitter and bitter at God because God was not giving her the money and, the, and the, that she wanted, that she thought she needed and so she ended up, it was just angry, and she thought, what? she couldn't even conceive the reality of there being any kind of temptation surrounding wealth. And so it had become a snare for her. Uh, and that is, you know, that's a cultural view. We are surrounded, we are in the bubble of culture that really has a, somewhat of a Marxist view of prosperity. Money equals prosperity. Money equals happiness, not just in our consumerism, in our capitalism, but even in our services, even in our relief efforts, even in our charities. We, con- we, uh, we think money solves the problem, and so the whole thing is about giving money. It's almost never about teaching people to build virtue, which creates long-term happiness, or creating quality of life, but it's all just about money and getting money. Uh, And so our friend had been brought to this place where God was teaching her that happiness and peace and security were really, they don't come from money. If you worship money, it can easily fail you and you can find yourself in an awful place. If all your trust is in money and money leaves, you're bummed. And so God was trying to teach our friend and many of us that that safety, that joy comes in a close presence with God. But she was interpreting it as God's neglect of her and being embittered. Awful sadness. David, when he was in the cave hiding from Saul, was super close to God, right? All those prayers, all those psalms, that God is my salvation, I can lay my head down and sleep in the midst of danger because I know that Yahweh is my deliverer. And he, was, he had peace, he had joy because he was close. But when he became wealthy, he started trusting in the money, he began to slowly drift from that. And that's the second thing. Second principle is that David began to slowly drift away from God. You know, the reality is in our, in our walk with Christ, we don't, we don't make a sudden break. It never happens that way. That we slowly, it's more like drifting like a boat that's been unanchored from the pier that just starts to slowly drift out into the harbor. Uh, I spoke at a, a youth group one day. I might have, I think I might have, um, they didn't ever ask me back. <laughs> when I started, they wanted me to share my story. How did I get to the point in my life, most of you know my story, where I had ended up becoming a drug smuggler and a, and a, and a seller, uh, a drug dealer selling methamphetamine, poisoning my own community. And my point was, I didn't get there in one decision. I started the talk by saying, hey, everybody, everybody here who wants to grow up to be a drug dealer, raise your hand. No hands. Who wants to grow up to be a prostitute? No hands raised up. Then I brought it, ratcheted it down a little bit more into real life. And I said, who wants to grow up to be someone who's characterized by anger and resentment? Who wants to grow up to be someone who's constantly angry at their spouse? Who wants to grow up to be someone whose who's, who's life is controlled 
by television advertising telling you what the new thing is that you need to be okay? Who wants to be controlled by greed, controlled by lust? Raise your hands. Nobody raised their hands because no little boy or girl says that when they're growing up. None of us do. It doesn't happen overnight. David did not wake up that morning and say, you know what I'm going to do? Today, I'm going to steal my best friend's gal and then I'm going to kill him. But that's where he found himself because it happened slow, one little decision at a time, one little incremental compromise. He had one wife, and then one wife turned to two wives, and then two wives turned to four wives. Even though God says in Pentateuch that the king should only have one wife, and then two wives turned to four wives, and then four wives turned to ten concubines, and then David's sense of entitlement was such that he convinced himself, he really probably believed, even though he knew who she was, that it was perfectly okay, or at least everyone should forgive it or let him, because he was the king of Israel. He was under a lot of pressure, under a lot of stress, under a lot of pressure. And he finds himself in this awful, dark place where he had drifted way, way farther than he thought it was ever possible. Tulian, too, I'm sure, never thought that he was going to end up like he did. But it happened one little compromise at a time. You know what? When I was thinking about all this stuff this week and meditating on it, this is the biggest thing that hit me this week is I was thinking about the role of spiritual disciplines in our lives. Reading, meditating on the word daily, praying, even more than that, coming to church every week whether you feel it or not, participating in the Lord's Supper, those disciplines in our lives, we always, I always tend to think, and I always tend to think of it in terms of gain. I'm going to get more holy. I'm going to get more sanctified. I'm going to become more spiritual. But you know what I think? I think the big job of all those spiritual disciplines is just to hold us against, it's the, it holds us against the power of the drift. Because it's so easy, so easy through just a little bit of neglect for us to start to believe that we can trust in something else than closeness and security with Christ. It'd be like George Clooney in the movie Gravity when he disconnects and just starts to slowly drift off into space. And then one day, without even realizing how far away we've drifted, we find ourselves in some super dark place, lying about it to cover our tracks. Just like King David, just like Tulian, just like countless stories. And so here's the big question. How is it even possible for a guy like David, who did this, to be called a man after God's own heart? How can it be even possible for David to be called righteous? How can a guy who stole his best friend's wife and then killed him and then lied about it to keep it a secret be called a righteous man? And the answer in the Bible is that the righteous trust in Christ. Part two. Part one, in the depths of sin. Part two, the righteous trust in Christ. 
Uh, maybe you don't know this, but the serial killer David Berkowitz, son of Sam. I don't know if you guys are even old enough to remember remember him in the 70s. I think he killed five people. Uh, he, in prison, has become, he's confessed, and for years and years now, he's claimed to be an evangelical Christian, totally changed, turned his life around. And many people don't believe it. They just don't, they don't buy it. They say, how can a guy who was a serial killer who killed five people, all of a sudden turn his life around and now all of a sudden be a Christian, be saved at all. I had a, a good friend of mine I brought to church once and we talked about, he heard the gospel, we talked about it and at the end of the day he rejected it because he said, he says, it makes no sense to me how you say a guy like Gandhi who's done so many good things isn't saved but a guy like David Berkowitz who killed five people and is an obvious bad guy, could be saved. That makes no sense to me. There's no justice in that. If that's what Christianity says, then you have a view of God that is unrighteous and unfair, and I reject it. What do you say to that? How is that even fair? Well, David answers the question for us, uh, and he answers that in a, in a different place. If you want to turn to your Bibles, we're going to talk about Psalm 32 now. Before we read the psalm, though, as you get there, listen, I'm going to read a couple other passages to you about David. And uh, these are passages, both of these passages are written after the event, after the whole sordid mess with, with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. Here's the, here's the first one. Listen, listen to what David says about himself. He says, "'The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness.'" According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. What? <clears throat> Are we forgetting something, David? Here's a second one. This is David's son, Solomon, talking about his father. He says, you have shown great loving kindness. That's the word hesed, which is a Hebrew word that just means God's faithfulness, his, his, his covenantal love, his oath-bound blood bound promise to us, his never-ending, always, always, always striving with us love. You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and the uprightness of heart towards you. Excuse me? Are we forgetting something? In these passages, it says David is righteous and upright in heart. How could that possibly be? We've just read the story. Solomon is Bathsheba's son, right? He knows the story. So how is it that David can be called righteous and upright in heart? Let's read Psalm 32. I'm going to read most of it, but not all of it. This David wrote uh, long after the event. Psalm 51 is what he, I think, wrote right after the event with great mourning. We sang that. We used that in our confession of faith today. The more mature David, after thinking about these things for years, wrote Psalm 32. This is what he said. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, did my groaning all day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. For surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Here's our first clue. First clue to how it is that David can be called the righteous man is what he says about who is blessed, who is happy, fulfilled, joyous. We would expect David to come out and say, blessed is the righteous man, or blessed is the perfect man, or blessed is the man against whom the Lord can find no sin. That's what we want to say. But what does he say? He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That's what makes you blessed in front of God. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. That means atoned for in New Testament language, covered over by a sacrifice. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, not finds no iniquity. There's iniquity there, but God doesn't count it to him, doesn't credit it to his account, takes it away. And so the man who's blessed, the man who is happy, the man who is blessed before God is not the perfect man, but the forgiven man. When David was unrepentant, God was like this, God, he presents God as like the heat of the sun beating down upon him, sucking all the life juices out of his body. In the Hebrew, it's descriptive of almost like David, his, his experience of seeing bodies left in the desert and corpses drying out in the sun. He said, when I held my sin, when I refused to confess, that's what I felt like. I felt like I, God was the heat of the sun drying me out. But when he repented, when he moved from the category of unrepentant to repentant, all of a sudden the same God now becomes a shelter The same God is now shouting, singing, songs surrounding him with songs of deliverance. God, David says, I confessed my sins to the Lord and immediately he forgave me. Just like that. Second clue. Second clue is is how many categories of people are given in this psalm. And there's only two. There's the unrepentant sinner in verses 3, 4. And there's the repentant sinner in verses 5 and 7. The one who is blessed. There is no third category. There is no perfect category. And that's because there are only two categories of people. There are the unrepentant, those who refuse to come clean, confess their sins before God. And the repentant, those who, who do and are honest and transparent and say, this is who, God, this is who I really am and I desperately need your forgiveness. 
And here's the key. Listen to this. Seriously. If you're sleeping right now, wake up. This is the most important thing I'm going to say all night. Listen to what the Holy Spirit speaking through David calls the repentant sinner in verses 6 and verse 11. The repentant sinner is called godly, righteous, and upright in heart. You understand what he just said? He said that God defines the righteous one not as the perfect one, not even according to our own works at all. God defines the righteous one, the godly, the upright in heart as the one who confesses his sin, the one who is honest about his failures, the one who lives transparency before the Lord. When the truth came out on David and this whole, this whole thing, the prophet Nathan comes to David, tricks him into admitting his own guilt or tricks him, tricks him into uh, admitting or, or passing sentence on himself. And as soon as the, it comes to David's uh, realization that he's guilty, he doesn't try to cover his sin anymore and immediately he confesses his sin and immediately God forgives his sin. And that is what categorizes the righteous, the upright in heart. And when you get that, listen, that is life-changing. Life-changing. This psalm for me, the first time I really studied through it and read it and understood what it was saying, it was saying, what it was saying that even in our sin, the Bible says, don't run from God. Run to him. We all think that we sin and we're guilty and we have to run and hide ourselves from God until such a time as we do enough penance or we do enough prayer, enough Bible studying, enough good works before we make ourselves righteous in front of God and then we can come back and say, can you forgive me? What we say, can you forgive me because I've done all this stuff? But listen, you cannot add anything to the perfect and complete finished work of Jesus for us. That self-atonement. What this is saying is we're to run to God even in the midst of our sins and confess and live in front of God that God wants us to do that. He has done everything that we need for our salvation. He wants to give us his forgiveness and his salvation. We don't need to ever be afraid of God again is what this means. But we can run to him. He's meaning to draw us in. One last big question remains is, is how? How is God able to do that? How is God able to, to just say to David, you're righteous? Isn't that a lie because of David, what he had done? I mean, how is that even fair? How is it that, how is that fair to Uriah? How is that fair to Bathsheba? How is that fair to Ahithophel, the grandfather? What about all the people he hurt? How is God able to call David righteous even when he's actually a sinner? Isn't that just lying? It's a big problem. A couple reasons it's a big problem. First is personal. Is that it's, really, it's easy for us to say that about David. That's not fair because he's a big sinner. But then we have to remember 
so are we. And if that's true, then we have to look at ourselves. What about my sin? What about how I've hurt people? What about the things that I've done? What about the secrets that I keep? Does that mean that God could never forgive me either? Two-way street. Bigger problem is how does, how does a holy God forgive sin? How can God just forgive sin and be, he would be unjust without bringing that sin to justice in some way? And so God has to find a way, if he's going to forgive us, to execute judgment on the sin without executing the sinner. How does he do that? Well, right after David confessed his sin to Nathan, he went to the temple and he took an animal, a spotless animal without blemish, without spot, and he went and brought the animal to the priest and sacrificed the animal to atone for his sins, to cover his sins. For a thousand years, God had the Jewish people do this ritual of animal sacrifice to teach them, to burn it into their minds that their sins would be forgiven based on the sacrifice of another. And at the same time, David knew all the messianic prophecies that someday one of the descendants, one of his descendants, God was going to make a house for David and for his descendants and that he would be righteous forever and rule in the house of God. And so for David... What that act meant when he came and made that sacrifice, for David it meant he was looking forward to the coming, to the coming Savior. For us, we know from the New Testament that that whole animal sacrifice system was a picture of Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin, the writer of Hebrews says, but they were a picture of of what Jesus was going to do until the Old Testament people were trusting in that promise of God and the, the, the blood of Jesus was covering their sins going backwards in time in the same way that the blood of Christ is covering our sins moving forward in time. And so for us, we realize that Jesus was our substitute, that God executed justice on Jesus. Our sin was paid for by him so that justice was done. God remains just He does not soil his own holy character and yet through that he is able to offer us forgiveness and offer us even more than that the righteousness of Jesus as a gift for everyone who will trust not in our own works but in the finished works of Jesus for us. That's the simple Christian gospel. It ain't about us. ain't about what we do. Amen? Because y'all be in trouble. But Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. God's justice was satisfied. And by trusting in that, by saying, yes, God, I believe Jesus is who he said he was. I believe all the mountains of evidence that you gave us to back that faith up. I believe, I believe and I put my trust in that. Instead, God saves us. Look what David says, end of the psalm, verse 10, David says it out loud, steadfast love, that's that God, that's hesed, again, covenantal love, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So how can God call David righteous after all he did? 
How can God call Tulian righteous after all he did? How can God call us righteous after all we've done? Simple. Because in the depths of sin, the righteous trust in Christ. Amen. Father, we love you and we praise you. We are so astonished by your character of mercy and love and forgiveness for us. Lord, in all of our sins and all the dirty secrets that we carry around with us that we have hopefully confessed to someone, we know that primarily we have offended you, that we have, we have not given you thanks, that we have not recognized you as God, that we have in some way, shape, or form destroyed your creation or brought hurt or pain or suffering in our wake and because of that we have offended you and we have caused harm and you being a holy and perfect God must seek justice for that. And Lord, if we were on our own we would have nothing to offer. We could never ever atone for our own sins and so because of that you have sent your son to be one of us to live among us to perfectly fulfill everything that law says for us as our champion And then you willingly allowed yourself to be murdered by your creatures and turned it around to be the thing that brought atonement and forgiveness for our sins. And we stand back from that and just say, hallelujah. God, all of your ways are right and just. And we will stop speaking and just worship you. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that. Lord, if there is anyone here tonight who does not know you, I pray that the power of your spirit would descend upon them and regenerate them and bring to them the knowledge of your love and mercy and salvation that is in Jesus Christ alone. And for the rest of us, Lord, that we would be refreshed and restored in the knowledge of your love for us and we would carry that forward in acts of gratitude and service to the world as we proclaim the gospel in everything we do. And so we thank you, Lord, as we approach the table tonight. We pray that you would help us to see what a good father you are to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.